We come today to the end of a month in which we've sought to emphasize the management of our lives. This morning we're going to take a little bit of a different track on this than might be expected because we're going to talk about what Jesus says about the poor. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we want to be good managers of those things that you have put into our lives and of life itself. And so teach us what that means. And then give us the grace to practice it in our lives. For we know that when we do, the blessing returns to us. Now teach us on this important theme that is part of our life management as well. For Jesus' sake, amen. Have you ever been poor? I know that most of us think of ourselves as poor because we have financial pressures and problems. And we equate those pressures and problems with poverty. We imagine that if only we had enough money, then all of our problems would be solved and we would be able to escape our worries. And so we see ourselves as poor because we're in debt or because we can't purchase the car that we need or because we can't send our children to the college of choice or because we're underemployed and have a low income or because we're retired with only Social Security to get by on. However, the truth is that most of us have never experienced poverty. We may have gone without some necessities, but most of us have never gone hungry except for a short time. We have never been evicted from a place to live and become homeless. We've not gone without shoes or sufficient clothing. We haven't lacked urgently needed medicine or care. We haven't been locked out of the possibility of changing our economic status because of where we have to live or because of our race or our class or our ethnic background. Whoever we are or whatever our circumstances, the truth is that every one of us sitting in this auditorium this morning is in fact rich in comparison with most of the world. The massive poverty that exists in places like Manila and Calcutta, Cairo and San Paulo exceeds what we can imagine. Nearly every major urban area in the third world has what is called a garbage city. I have seen one of these with my own eyes. A garbage city is actually a population of thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people who live and eat in the garbage dump of the city. That is their only subsistence. Poverty exists also in the cities of America. And frankly, it's easier for most of us who live in the suburbs or in nice neighborhoods to ignore it, or at least to pretend 
to ourselves that we do not see it. You see, it's easier to do that than it is to acknowledge what is reality for some people, even in our own nation, and try to bring some change to their lives. However, I'm convinced that we cannot be the genuine followers of Jesus Christ and ignore the plight of the poor. Jesus was born himself among a poor people. And in that context, he chose to live a life of poverty in order that he might identify with the lowest of sinners. He himself said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A self-confessed statement of homelessness. Paul testified, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Now that poverty is more than physical, material poverty. It embraces a poverty that is far beyond our comprehension. But I remind you that Paul says that in the context of material poverty. And he says that even though we, his followers, may be poor, we need to be rich in giving, as was Jesus. Jesus loves the poor. And he calls you and me who are his followers to love them too. I'm reminded of a statement that Jesus made shortly before his crucifixion. I don't have time to go into the context of the statement where it fits very well. But listen to what Jesus says in Mark 14, verse 7. The poor you always have with you. The poor you always have with you. Poverty is a reality in the fallen world. When Jesus made that statement, he was not being callous. He was not being cavalier about the plight of the poor. He simply acknowledged the reality of poverty in the world. And I ask you as I ask myself, why is there poverty so present in our world? Well, I can think of at least four reasons, or four categories of reasons, actually, as to why there is poverty in the world. In the first place, it is because, sometimes, of personal circumstances. Poverty sometimes arises out of laziness, or out of mental illness, or because of addiction to drugs or to alcohol. But poverty exists because of personal circumstances. Secondly, it exists because of political oppression. Politics can create a crushing famine, as it is now in North Korea, or hunger in Iraq because of the political desires of its leader. Poverty exists partly because of political oppression. Third, poverty exists because of economic injustice. By this I mean the system. The economic system is stacked against those who are in poverty in many places, including our own urban ghettos. 
the real circumstances of their situation, which none of us really can identify with, is such that it is impossible for them to escape. It is easy for us to say, well, if they could, if they weren't lazy. The fact is that many of those people are very industrious, but they have no way to escape the cycle of poverty in which they are trapped. Not only because of economic injustice, injustice, but fourthly, because of racial prejudice, poverty exists in the world. Racial apartheid or separation creates an imbalance of wealth. So does discrimination that prevents a minority person from gaining economic capital or moving up the economic ladder. And I want to say again that that is the case in many of our ghetto situations in America. Because of racial prejudice, they're unable to gain the economic capital needed in order to improve themselves or to move up the economic ladder. We tell them to lift themselves up by their own bootstraps like we did. They don't have any boots. Now, frankly, at the root of most of these causes of poverty is human fallenness and sin. Sloth, dissipation, greed, pride, hatred. All of these create attitudes that in turn create poverty. Poverty is a reality in a fallen world, and it is into that kind of a world that our Savior incarnated himself, in which he came and was flesh among us. That brings me to a second statement that I want to present this morning, and that is that Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. That was his commission as the Messiah. I invite you to turn over a few pages in your Bible to Luke chapter 4 and the 14th verse, where after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, he eventually returns to Galilee and there goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and as a visiting rabbi is allowed to, to read the scripture and to preach on it that day. To him was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he opened and found the place where they were reading in the natural course of things week by week and this just happened to be the text. Jesus read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so he reads what his commission is as the Messiah. And the very first thing that Isaiah said prophetically was the Messiah would come to preach the gospel to the poor. Later this becomes a mark of authenticity that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. Turn over to chapter 7. In chapter 7 the disciples of John come to Jesus, John being in prison, and, and they ask him, how, does, how do we know that you are the Messiah? 
Are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Verse 22 of Luke 7, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus says that is evidence that in fact he is the Messiah. Now why is that remarkable? It is because the poor were considered unworthy of any attention. And actually under the curse of God because they had no material things. The mistaken belief of the Jews in that day was that if you had a lot of material things, God was pleased with you and you were blessed. That deception did not die in the first century. It exists in our own day and in our own nation. When Jesus preached the gospel to the poor, how did he do it? How did he do it? He did it accompanied by actions of compassion, demonstrating God's love to them. As he says here, he healed their diseases. He delivered them of demons. He touched their uncleanness. He fed their hungry stomachs so that they could hear his message. Did all of them believe? Did all of them appreciate what he was doing? No. Were there those who took advantage of his healings and of his food? Yes. Did he know that there would be some who would follow him only because of the miracles? Yes. Did that stop him? No. It did not. Jesus intentionally proclaimed the gospel of salvation in the context of compassionate ministry to the poor, the socially rejected, and the oppressed. Listen to what he said to them in the Sermon on the Plain, as Luke records it in the sixth chapter. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. And then he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Believe me, that sounded as radical in that day as it does today to those who listen to it. And as disturbing to those who are affluent, content, happy, and accepted in the dominant cultural system. 
Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the poor. And the third thing that I want to say is that Jesus calls us also to proclaim the gospel to the poor. God points out there are three classes of people who were to be especially cared for in the ancient nation of Israel. They were the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, the non-Israelites who lived among them. Because you see, in that day and in that culture, these were the most at risk in the economic realities that existed. The widows and the orphans and the aliens had nothing to fall back on except the generosity of people, and most of them were left to begging. And so God ordered his people to especially care for these who were needy. Special laws were established in his covenant with Israel to protect and to provide for them. In a sense, it was divinely ordained welfare. And it models something like affirmative action in our day. Now, welfare as it has come to be practiced in America is now widely and rightly condemned as a failure in almost every respect. Our government has mandated welfare reform to make it more just and enabling, hopefully, to the poor, rather than condemning them to a life of dependence and poverty. In our own state, on January 1st of this month, the Minnesota Family Investment Program took effect, which dramatically changes the rules of the system of welfare. As we look at the welfare reform that is taking place, most of us rightly applaud the reform, but we must be careful not to advocate the throwing out of the baby with the bathwater. Because our society, though we are not ancient Israel, must compassionately assist the truly impoverished and those who are at risk, as I would see it, including single parent families, legal immigrants, and those who are crushed beneath the economic system that will not work for them as it is now structured. You say, well, what is the church's role in all of this? It's a very good question. Again, the church, neither is ancient Israel. But we are God's people. And we must not neglect the poor. Generosity toward the poor is commended in Proverbs. God says in chapter 14, verses 21 and 31, he who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for his maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And again in chapter 19, verse 17, he says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Not only is generosity commended, but justice for the poor is commanded by God in the prophets. 
Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow, said God through his prophet Isaiah. And Jeremiah condemns those neglecting the poor when he says in chapter 5, verse 18, their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. God commands us to seek justice on behalf of the poor. Third, as the church, concern for the poor is modeled in the early church. As you know, in reading the book of Acts, there was occasional communal living intended in part to provide for those who had need. There was in the early church <coughs> famine relief and offerings taken for the assistance of the poor. You see this throughout Acts and the epistles. Concern for the poor is modeled for us in the early church. But I want to say also the consideration for the poor is a part of the New Testament ethic for Christ's followers. Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus and he says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. And James joins with Paul and says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes also in a man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to love, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. We, the people of God today, have a responsibility in the context of the church and in the context of our broader society to care for the poor. Our proclamation of the gospel of redemption, which is the very heart of what we are to do, must also be in the context of compassionate, caring ministry, as was the ministry of Jesus. John Perkins, a black brother, writes in the book entitled A Quiet Revolution about his own growth 
in understanding ministry to his African-American community. He says, I quote him, our evangelism had brought us face to face with physical needs. We had been preaching the gospel according to John 3.16. Now we were discovering that our response must be to implement the gospel according to 1 John 3.16. In that verse, we are exhorted to lay down our lives for the brethren. And the next verse goes on to say, Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Perkins went on to found the Voice of Calvary, a community development ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi. That is a marvelous example of how the redemptive gospel must be coupled with social action in context of ministry to the poor. Probably in no arena have we failed more miserably in preaching the whole gospel of Jesus Christ than in the community of the African Americans. John Perkins makes this statement that stabs me. With few exceptions, he says, there has been since the original enslavement of the black man in America no systematic concerted effort on the part of evangelical white Christians to evangelize or to develop any sort of community uplift in the black community. This is the historic negligence which we faced as the civil rights movement spread across the country. That is a convicting statement to me. The poor of America are congregating in the great urban centers of the, and that is not only true in America, it's true in the world. In 1900, listen to this, in 1900 there were 20 cities that had a million or more people in the world. Twenty. In a year and a half, in the year 2000, there will be 4,000 such cities of a million or more. And nine out of ten of them will be in developing countries. The poor are going to the cities in order to seek a better living. At the same time that the poor are coming out of the rural areas to the cities, we are sending 80% of our missionaries to the rural areas. Something needs to be refocused there. I want to close by just suggesting how we at Grace Church Roseville might do a better job of ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of compassionate, caring ministry. In the first place, we can volunteer. Volunteer with and give toward ministries that are already doing something. On the back of your outline this morning in the bulletin, there are some addresses 
One is for challenge the mentality. And it suggests that there you can get a hold of Julie Norris here in our, our church staff, who has already worked with challenge the mentality along with some of the others of you in some outreaches. This is a marvelous outreach to the black community in Minneapolis, to the poor, and its evangelism in the context of compassionate ministry. That's one place you can do it. I did not put down the address for Hospitality House. That is another possibility, and there are others. Habitat for Humanity is another. There's a second way I want to suggest as well, and that is to volunteer through the Salvation Army's Operation Breakthrough to mentor low-income families as part of a team. And there's a telephone number and a person to call there, Stacy who can tell you how you can be part of a team of people to mentor one low-income family over the course of a year to help them get out of their circumstances. And then there are other ways within our community to, to be involved, and you can research those by getting a hold of the Suburban Ramsey Family Collaborative or Metrolink. I wish I had more time to talk about those organizations, but my plea to you this morning is that Jesus loves the poor and he calls us to love them too. If we're going to do that, the first thing we need to do is to learn compassion. To learn compassion. Jesus was in the house of Levi eating with the outcasts of his day, the tax gatherers, and the sinners and the very righteous Pharisees said why does your your Lord your master eat with people like this you know what Jesus said to them he said go and learn what this means I desire compassion and not sacrifice what Jesus said to them was, go and learn compassion. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not going to learn compassion by sitting here on Sunday mornings and talking about the poor. You need to drive into the Phillips neighborhood in the daytime and see it. And you need to drive to North Minneapolis, and you need to just go with Alan Holt or one of the other ministries here and see for yourself. I believe Jesus is saying to us, who are rather content and satisfied with our lives, go and learn compassion and invest yourself and live with kingdom values. And as we do that, we will authenticate the message of Jesus Christ. And we will show that he is, in fact, the true Messiah of the world. And they will listen. Let's pray. Lord, it is much easier for us to be involved at arm's length with the poor. We are convicted that is so unlike the one that we call Lord. 
And so teach us what compassion is and how in the management of our lives we can serve your kingdom by proclaiming the gospel in the context of loving ministry to the poor. Use us to do that, I pray. Amen.